Good to be at Abundant Life. Uh, I have been here 18 hours now. And um, one thing I can conclude is you deserve your name. It is an exciting place. This is a happening place. I wish every church had the same name, Abundant Life. I mean, shouldn't that be the name of every church everywhere? Yeah. But you, uh, you've got one, and you've got this remarkable pastor. I, I, I hear your concern for the children and the people hurting in your own Jerusalem, your own city here. Uh, but I see your fingerprints all the way across the world at the ends of the earth. And that's where I met uh, George, was, uh, was way down there in Ecuador. Uh, fell in love with him right away. Who, who can't? The kids fell in love with him. The kids are very great readers of character, as you know. And they, they fell in love with your pastor. Every, every little child had to feel this beautiful chrome dome. <laughs> I watched him uh, serve children, among the poorest of the poor children, in an otherwise completely hopeless neighborhood where you guys have planted this church. And I watched him uh, feed, uh, bring meals to the little children. Little children sitting on these, in these little tables and, and bowls of, of, of rice and chicken that he brought like a king, giving it to nobility. His humility, his spirit uh, was, was really something to see. And I knew in my heart right away, I had a kindred spirit in George. And, and sure enough, I also knew that behind him had to be a pretty remarkable church. And here you are. Uh, you're not all 10 feet tall like I thought you would be by the way he describes you. And uh, most of you don't walk on water, but I assume that you must as I listen to how proud he is uh, of you guys. I feel at home uh, among you. Uh, normally when I am speaking, it's at conferences and at uh, seminars and such where I am uh, trying to challenge uh, mission executives and uh, senior pastors and theologians and missiologists on the importance of children. And uh, it's fun to watch because usually they're looking like, you can tell from their body language, they're like, we're going to talk about what? And is there anything I don't already know about this? But I now, as I look at you, I realize you do know this. Uh, any child who is a part of this place is, uh, is blessed. Jennifer, your, your child minister, is a hero among you. Um, you ordained, the, you dedicated these wonderful children up here. Uh, you know, you parents who, do, who, who create these beautiful kids, you should be doing more of this for the world. We need these kind of kids in the world. Surrounded by a family that, uh, that pours themselves into into them. So today, um, it's like a vacation day for me. I don't think I need to convince you of the importance of children. Instead, what I would like to do is encourage you and maybe arm you to join us in the battle of speaking up for these little ones who can't speak for themselves. This little church that you planted down in Ecuador uh, met this morning. Do you realize that? Your brothers and sisters in Christ, they sang in Spanish, but they, they opened the same Bible probably did communion just like you, uh, prayed to the same God just like you, and um, they are a tremendous light in a very dark, dark place. And those of you who sponsor children in that church, uh, you will not fully know the power and the strategic importance of that until you walk into the kingdom of God and you will hear the applause for you having found your way to the most important part, ultimately, I think, of the kingdom of God. The message that I have for you this morning is called, The Least of These is the Most Important. 
All throughout history, the church and missions by our priorities and by our budgets and by our strategies have behaved as if when Jesus in Matthew 25 said, whatever you have done for one of the least of these, my brothers, you've done it unto me, he must have inadvertently skipped a word. He must have meant to say, whenever you've done it unto one of the least important of these. But he didn't skip a word. He was very deliberate in that description. And what he was saying by the least of these, and that is the marginalized, the weak, the poor, the young, the, uh, the vulnerable, when you have done it for one of these who can't speak for themselves, uh, who can't protect themselves, who can't care for themselves, when you've done it for one of these who cannot thank you properly, who cannot honor you properly, then, mysteriously and wonderfully, that was me, Jesus says, that you did that for. So that little boy that you wouldn't give up on, Jesus will say one day, surprise, that was me. That little girl that you protected when she so needed protecting, Jesus will say, that was, that was me. That tear you wiped from that little cheek, that was mine. I felt that. I felt that long overdue hug that you gave. Whatever you did for one of the least of these, you did it for me. And that day is coming uh, that Jesus was speaking about when all of the nations will gather before him. And then we will understand what was important and what wasn't important. And a big surprise, who was important and who wasn't important. So today, I don't want to try to convince you of the importance of ministry to children, but I want to arm you for the battle. But it is possible uh, that we're already all on the same page, and I don't want to waste your time if we all are in agreement about the importance of ministry to children. So let's start with a little pretest. You don't get to be Dr. Stafford without making a few classrooms squirm. If we are all on the same page and we all agree, well, then we'll just go get a cup of coffee and I won't, I won't waste your time, okay? So it's really on you whether we go forward from this point on or not. It's an easy test. You don't need a paper and pencil, just your imagination. The story is told of uh, the great evangelist Dwight L. Moody, who founded Moody Bible Institute, one of the places I graduated from. One day uh, in the 1800s, as he climbed into, bless that little child. <laughs> that is worship. <laughs> One day as he was climbing into, uh, into bed uh, after an evangelistic service, his wife, Emma, who apparently didn't go that night, she rolled over and she said, well, Dwight, how did it go tonight? And he said, well, pretty good. Two and a half converts. Well, Emma thought for a minute. She says, that's a cute way to put it. How old was the child? And he said, no, 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 Emma. There were two children and one adult. The children have their whole lives in front of them. It's the adult who's half gone. <laughs> I don't know. Too many of you pictured two grown-ups and a child by that laughter. So I'm sorry, we got to go forward with this. A word of encouragement. I had worked at Compassion for 10 years when I heard that story, focused on children, and even I thought two grown-ups and a little child. Well, I don't anymore, and that's why I wrote the book Too Small to Ignore, to speak up for those who can't speak for themselves. D.L. Moody, in the 1800s, led over a million people to a personal relationship with Jesus Christ. And well over half of them were children. And he said on his deathbed, with his last breaths, he said, if I had my life to live over again, I would dedicate it entirely in ministry to children. 
Well, in the 1800s, that would, those are pretty surprising words, and he was way out of step with the priorities of the theologians and the mission executives of his day. But the sad thing is he would still be out of step with most of the priorities of our Christian leaders and our institutional leaders uh, in, the, in the world today. He understood the harvest. Picture this harvest. We are all committed to bringing this world to Christ, are we not? The sea of humanity that's described in Matthew 25, all nations gathered together before the king. Who are these people? And what do they look like in your mental image? And now if every other person in your imagination is not a child, well, then you don't know what the harvest looks like because we now live in a world that is half children. They are half of the harvest, but they're not just quantifiably an important part of it. They are strategically an important part of it. Missiologists tell us that 85% of people who give their lives to Christ do it while they're children between the ages of four and 14. So let's do a little research here. How many of you would raise your hand and say, yeah, Wes, that was me. I gave my heart to Jesus between the ages of four and 14. Raise them real high. Look at this. Yeah, the, the statistics hold up here. How many of you accepted Christ between 15 and 20? Raise your hands. You guys are a rare exception. How many accepted Christ after 20? Oh my goodness, you guys completely uh, beat the odds. The probability of someone ever coming to Christ after the age of 20 is only a 6% probability. You beat the odds. You should run out and buy a lottery ticket or something. I mean, oh. And yet it is those over 20 where about 90% of our mission effort is being given around the world, only 10% toward children. And it is a rare church that spends more than 15% of its effort on children. I don't know about you, I'm not a rocket scientist, but if we do not have a paradigm shift, if we do not start thinking differently, we are not going to bring in the harvest that we are called to, to bring in. So I've asked myself as I've pondered, how, how could we miss this? It is so perfectly clear. How could we miss this? And I've, I've wondered, well, is it because there's just too few children? Uh, I mean, segments, little segments of society get lost all the time in the shuffle. But as I said, no, it's, the question isn't other too few of them. They are half of our world. I thought, well, maybe they're unimportant. Or maybe because they're children, they're only half as important because they're only half our size. My wife, Donna, is only half my size, and she can make a real clear case why size has nothing to do with importance. So that's not it. Could it be that it's all too complicated? We're unfamiliar with the plight of children. More of us need to get PhDs in this field. We need to know more than we know. And I, I think, no, I don't think so. Uh, as I look in this room, every single person in this room is a child development expert. Uh, anybody over 18 years of age, you spent 18 years doing nothing but being a child. You know what it feels like done right. You might know what it feels like done, done poorly. Everybody deserves an honorary doctorate in this very complex field for the field research that you have done. You spent 9,500,000 minutes doing nothing but being a child. It's not like we need to know anything more. I thought, well, maybe the scripture should be a little more clear. Maybe God should have made it a little more emphatic, the importance of children. 
And yet you go through your scriptures and the mandate is very clear. Train up a child in the way he should go. And when they're old, they won't depart from it. And Jesus was never more angry when children are being pushed away from him. He did not coo, by the way. If you read the scriptures, he was irate. He was angry. He was indignant when he said, you let those children come to me. Don't you dare hinder them. That's my kingdom standing there. No question about God's heart and our mandate. But what I enjoy is going through the scriptures and finding children. I've discovered that almost any time the scriptures hone in on a child for a, for a few verses, inevitably God is up to something pretty, pretty important. God loves children, he believes in children, and he uses children all through scriptures for sometimes very important things. It's like God says, wow, this is really important. I don't dare entrust this to a grown-up. I need a child for this one. I need a child to kill this great big evil giant that's ridiculing me and my people because what's needed is not military might but faith that only a little boy named David could have. Or when a high priest is so far from God that God cannot even talk to him. God had not talked to his people for 400 years. He needed a breakthrough, but Eli's antenna were broken. And he chose a little boy named Samuel to come in and speak to Eli. Now, most of us with a little child would have said, we got to make this easy. Tell Samuel or tell Eli that I love him and please be good. No, you know what, you know what uh, Samuel delivered? Eli's pink slip. You are fired, Eli. You and your sons are done. And God said, I need a powerful message to get the attention. I need a pure, clear channel like only a child can give. Jesus taught when he was uh, 12 years old in the temple. I believe that Jesus waited until a little boy came forward with his, his lunch of five loaves and two fish uh, before he fed a multitude of 5,000 people. Us grown-ups, how would we think? Uh, we would have said, uh, well, excuse me, I'm the only scout here who thought to bring his lunch. Sorry for all the rest of you. Or it might have gone a little more generous. I, you know, I got five loaves and two fish. You can have one fish and two loaves. That seems fair to me. Uh, but a little boy came to Jesus and said, Jesus, what, what if I gave you everything I have? Would that be enough? And I believe that miracle was done for that little boy. The problem with us grown-ups is we think too much, or we, we know too much, or the real problem is we, we think we know too much, and we miss out on golden opportunities to really reach out to children. Or if it isn't about scripture, maybe it's because we just don't love children. Maybe there's lack of compassion for children, and after 38 years of being a part of compassion, traveling the world, I have yet to stumble onto a society that doesn't love and believe in its children. Almost always there's a proverb somewhere that says, children are a poor man's riches. So it's none of those reasons. I thought, well, maybe they're forgotten. Maybe they're a second-rate mandate. Maybe they're left behind because they're easy to overlook. They're easy to ignore. Think about it. They are powerless. They are without resources. They have no organized voice. Uh, they have no political understanding of how things get done. Uh, every segment of society, it seems, has learned how to protest, to march, to demonstrate on behalf of their own agenda, except children. Ever seen a children's protest march? No, I haven't either. We have certainly heard from the Tea Party. I maintain we need to hear from the Teething Party. 
But if they could speak for themselves, these children might have a great deal to say because you see, they pay the price for everything that goes wrong in our society. It all eventually spirals downward and lands on the heads of our weakest, most vulnerable citizens. When there's famine and there's hunger, it is the children who starve. Adults get hungry, but the children starve. When there's disease, it's the children who die. In our natural disasters, inevitably more victims are children. Our sins of commission, doing the things that we know we shouldn't do, uh, children pay the greatest price. Do you know that in the last 10 years' wars, far more children have been killed in the battles than soldiers? Ugly things like pornography at its very sickest is child pornography. No society in the world accepts that, and yet it's a massive, huge industry. Prostitution at its sickest is child prostitution. Do you know that there are 27 million slaves in our world today? That's more slaves than there were at the time of Wilberforce uh, when, when he sought in England to abolish slavery. Most of those 27 million are young women and little children caught in the sex trafficking industry. It used to be that we bought and sold slaves as bad as that was on the basis of how strong are they, how much wood can they carry, how much cotton can they pick. Now it's even uglier. Now they're bought and sold and the value is based on how weak are they, how small are they, how vulnerable are they, how easily can they take, be taken advantage of. And I maintain what's going on in all of that. Hell simply does not burn hot enough. But we say, well, you know, I'm not a part of any of that. That's awful. But there are also sins of omission not doing the things that we know we should do. The unhappy homes that we tolerate year after year after year while our spirits of our children shrivel up. The, the, uh, the divorce that eventually children will uh, suffer and blame themselves uh, usually uh, for what, if only I'd have been a better little boy, if I'd only cleaned my room, mommy and daddy would love each other. They pay the price. Like I say, for everything that goes wrong. One of the first things we do for children in school, you, you kindergarten teachers, is we teach them how to stand in line. The tragedy in our world is they're very good at it and they get better at it all the time, but they're always at the end of the line. There's always somebody bigger, stronger, with more resources, bigger voice that gets to the front of the line and their agenda is what gets done. They don't vote, so they don't get the attention of our politicians much. Uh, if they could vote, uh, they might have something to say about the federal deficit that we're leaving for them to pay while we keep all the comfort we want or the environment that we're destroying uh, for them to presumably either live in or, or clean up. They don't tithe, or if they do, it's just a bunch of sticky pennies and uh, it doesn't get the attention of our mission executives and many times not our, not our church boards. They own nothing to get champions on their own behalf. They don't have any trophies to give. Uh, they don't have any flattering plaques to put up on the walls of people they're seeking to champion them. Uh, they don't give honorary degrees from the elementary schools. Uh, I've traveled the world. I have yet to find the Children's Hall of Fame where they honor their heroes. So all of it is stacked against them. And I come back to, so how could we miss this if it's so important in the kingdom of God? And I have come to this conclusion. While they are unimportant many times to our governments and to our missions and often in our churches, they are hugely important to the two most powerful forces in all of history, in all the universe, the forces of hell and the forces of heaven. There is a battle that rages invisibly over our heads over each and every child. 
Satan is determined to do one thing. He is determined to break God's heart. And he has learned the way to break God's heart is to attack what he loves most. And then he's asked, so when's the best time to attack? He's not stupid. And he came to the conclusion, well, the sooner the better. This is why the womb has become one of the most dangerous places on the earth to be a child. Either through poverty or comfort, either way, it's a risky place to get through. But we know from the kingdom of, of God's perspective, uh, all of heaven stands and rejoices when one little child enters in. Can you imagine the joy that goes on in heaven? We know that God doesn't just love children. He knits them specifically, Psalm 139, in their mother's womb. He knows their names. He knows the number of hairs on their heads, the pattern of their fingerprints. Uh, he would have died on the cross if there was only one child on earth. I'm absolutely convinced. So this battle rages over our heads. Meanwhile, we are oblivious to it and we don't understand the strategic importance of these little ones. If they can survive the womb, then Satan attacks with all of his effort on these young little ones. I've written another book called Just a Minute. And in it, I make the case that the spirit of a child is a lot like wet cement. It doesn't take any time or effort to make an impression that could last a lifetime. It's been said... There's always one moment in childhood when the door opens and lets the future in. So Satan will attack while the cement is, is pliable. If you wait until they're teenagers, by the way, and you want to make an impression, uh, the cement has started to set. Now it's a hammer and chisel if you want to make any kind of an impression. Again, that's where a lot of our effort goes. If you wait until they're old grown-ups like me, and you want to make me think differently or feel differently at all, make an impression on me, now you need a stick of dynamite. Boom! Long time since I had a brand new thought and changed my behavior and went in a, in a new direction. Satan knows that, and so he attacks children the most viciously. As it seems, all major movements of humanity throughout history have understood the importance of children and impacting the next generation, except us evangelical-type Christians. Hitler understood it. For 10 years, he worked with children building the Hitler Youth Movement before the first shot was fired in World War II. Mao Zedong understood that, and that's how the communist movement uh, grew up among, uh, among children. The Islam understands it. The Taliban gets it. ISIS is training five-year-old fighters, and yet we don't seem to get it. And this is why I fight so hard. Yes, we need a paradigm shift. And people ask me sometimes, Wes, you know, you're, you're retired now. Uh, when are you going to go play golf and go fishing and, uh, you know, back off and relax? And I'm like, never. As long as God gives me breath, I will fight for children. And it comes from a, a, a childhood uh, where poverty attacked me first. I'm pretty sure when I was being born, the angels gathered around and said, you know, <laughs> cute as a button but not very smart. So we're gonna have to make it real clear what he's to do with his life. And I was allowed to be born into a missionary family and raised in the Ivory Coast of West Africa next to the Sahara Desert. Typical day where I grew up was 120 degrees. I was a typical missionary kid. Any missionary kids in here? Be nice to those people. It's a, it's a, it's a tough, tough job. I grew up barefoot most of the time. Uh, always with a slingshot around my neck. 
I was, uh, I was skinny. I was sickly. Our nearest hospital was a full day's drive away. Nearly died six times as a little child. The closest I ever came to death was army ants who came in and almost killed me. And if you lack a cause, by the way, and you want a cause that's very close to my heart, you can join me in stepping on every ant that you see. It'll take me a lifetime to get even with those guys. Typical missionary kid, I spoke four languages every day, but none of them really very well. Two African languages, French and English. My sister and I were the only white children for 100 miles in any direction. My father was a missionary. He was a linguist, put one of the African languages into writing, translated scriptures. I taught Africans how to read their own language by pump up Coleman Lantern from the time I was five years old. They had a saying in the village, it takes the whole village to raise a child. This was not a plaque on their walls. Uh, this was how the village lived its life. Every child belonged to every grown-up. And although I was the wrong color, they took me in as their own child. And I never fell down in my little village in Africa without some African woman swooping in, picking me up, drying my tears, sending me on my way. I didn't get away with a whole lot of uh, mischief because I had all these grown-ups who thought I was their kid and I stood out. I remember the chief of the village one evening, we all had gathered around the center fire uh, for the evening gathering and uh, he said, you know, the goats are getting kind of skinny and it's not because we're in a, a famine, it's because the little boys are chasing them all around. And in the swirling red dust, I don't know who all the culprits are, but I know this, the little white boy is one of them. So every night as a little boy, I prayed, uh, dear Lord, and I know you can do this. You brought down the walls of Jericho. You parted the Red Sea. In the morning when I wake up, please let my skin be black like all my friends. And that would be the first thing I checked every morning. I'm like, still white. They taught me what they taught their kids. I learned how to hunt. I learned how to fish. Uh, I, by the time I was 15 years old, I was a fully qualified peasant farmer. Uh, in, that little, in that little village. They also taught me my values. They shaped my heart. I tell people that everything I ever needed to know to lead Compassion's worldwide ministry, I learned from the poor in that little village. Values like love. The poor know things about love. I remember them teaching me, love is the most amazing thing. The more of it you give away, the more of it you get. And no matter how poor you are, you can give love. And I learned about joy. Joy is a decision that you make, uh, not dictated by circumstances. Neither is hope. I learned about time being your servant, not your master. I learned to be generous. The worst thing you could be in my little poverty-stricken village was selfish. To withhold from your brother in his time of need was unacceptable behavior. We just, we, we gave whatever we had away. I learned that if God made you strong, it's not for you. It's for you to be there for those who are weak. And if God made you brave, it's not for you, it's for you to be there for those who are frightened. And that was how my tender little spirit, when the cement of my soul was being shaped, was shaped by the very poor, the people that I now have given the rest of my life to ministering to. But we were poor. It was a poverty-stricken village, and we were vulnerable to everything that the poor are, are vulnerable to. Uh, we needed rain, or the, or the crops didn't grow. Uh, I remember a plague of locusts that came into our village one time. 
and, uh, and ate everything green. They were on the ground for two hours, and they ate at harvest time everything that was green. And when they flew off, it was, it, it was done. The sky was black with them. And for a year, us in my village ate nothing but bugs. The animals migrated away. The swamp dried up, and, uh, and we, we barely held on. I remember uh, the next year, an epidemic of measles swept through our village. Measles that should keep you out of school for a couple of days. But because we were so weak from hunger, uh, it was a killer in my village. In, in a span of two weeks, one out of every four of my childhood buddies died of measles, many of them in my arms. I remember running to my father as he was translating in this hot tin shed. And I said, Papa, um, when do you think it'll be my turn? And I'll never forget, he said, your turn for what, Wes? And I said, my turn to die, Daddy. All my friends are dying. When do you think I'll die? And I will never forget this abundant life. My father said, son, you don't have to worry about that. You're not going to die of this. And I said, how do you know, Papa? And he said, roll up your, your T-shirt. And I rolled up my shirt and he says, those little scratches on your arms are called vaccinations. You got that in America before you came here so that you wouldn't get this disease. And I will never forget the moment it was one of those just a minute moments in my life when through the blur of my tears looking at my father, it suddenly occurred to me the world isn't fair and I stammered, Papa, why don't all of my friends have scratches on their arms? Imagine my joy to grow up and lead compassion ministry where we put tens of thousands of scratches on kids' arms every year. But my heart was shaped in that moment. By the time I was 15 years old, uh, Half of all the children in my village, the ones I had grown up with, had died. And we buried them the same day that they died. We had no choice. We had no electricity, no way to embalm, no refrigeration. And so they died this morning, and we buried them that evening. And then the village gathered together, and we mourned the loss of these little children. I remember listening to the drums talking about my little buddies as I lay in my, hot, in my cot. And... Um, and I would just cry myself to sleep. Hundreds of nights of my childhood, I cried myself to sleep over the loss of little friends. I remember I'd lie on my back and my eyes would fill with tears and my ears would fill with tears. It would spill onto my pillow. I would eventually drift to sleep. But then a few days later, it would be another one of my friends. And I thought, that's how the world is. And then I came to America at age 15. And the first place I saw was New York City. I saw people walking around with big brown paper bags and I looked inside, I could see it was food and being a pretty good hunter, I backtracked that stuff. Where's that coming from? And I'll never forget coming to my first grocery store. And what I saw in that grocery store was more than enough food and it hit me. They didn't need to die. There's plenty of food. And next door was a pharmacy and in my broken English, I asked, what all this? And he said, it's all medicine. I said, you have vaccination? He said, oh yeah, it's in the freezer in the back. We don't sell it to guys like you, but we got plenty of it for the doctors. And I, it occurred to me, they didn't need to die of that either. And I went and I sat on the curb in front of that store as a 15 year old skinny little lost guy. And I just wept and I wept and I wept. Nobody so much as stopped, it was New York City, nobody so much as stopped and asked, are you okay? And I cried until I had no more tears. And then I began watching these people going by with these fancy shoes and these fancy purses and watches. And I was like, what is wrong with you people? You have all of this and you don't care. And I went into a rage that lasted all the way through my high school years and on into college, off to, to Moody Bible Institute, until I had lived in America long enough to realize, you know what, these are the most generous people in all of history. 
when they know the, they, they, they are tremendously generous in giving. And I realize the issue isn't that they don't care. The issue is they don't know. And when they know, they really, really care. And I knew what I was to do with my life. Somehow I had to bridge these two worlds. I knew both cultures. I knew the language now. And I knew that they actually needed each other. These people with money in their pockets needed love and joy and peace that could come from the poor. And the poor needed some of that money to get food and vaccinations so that they could live. They needed each other. This is why what you're doing in Ecuador is so absolutely incredible. And I thought, what am I going to do? I'm going to have to become, uh, I don't know, an ambassador or something. And uh, I struggled with what do I do with my life, with what I know and what I think the world needs. When I stumbled onto this little organization called Compassion, it was a little storefront in Chicago about the size of a 7-Eleven store when I joined it 38 years ago. We had 30,000 sponsored children in the entire world. Today, it's 1,700,000 children. Uh, we work now through 6,900 churches, one of those in Ecuador and, and another one to come are, are your churches where you are reaching out. My great joy as a son of a missionary is that today 400 children are going to accept Jesus Christ as their savior. We know that because we track that. It's our bottom line. I know it's true because it happened yesterday. It will happen again tomorrow. Happens every day of the year. Look around in here. It would take two days of Compassion's ministry to fill every seat in this sanctuary with a child who has accepted Christ as their savior. Now the joy is discipling them to reach their full God-given potential. This is why I fight so hard against poverty. This is why I champion the cause of kids. If I, poverty and I were two kids fighting in the playground and the teacher stepped in and said, who started this? I would say, poverty did. I'm spending the rest of my life fighting against it. And any of you who join me in this battle, I am so incredibly, incredibly grateful. So my prayer for you is the same as the prayer that I have for myself, that you will find a cause, that you will find something that stirs your heart deeply, so deeply that it can move you to tears in 30 seconds, either tears of sorrow or tears of joy, something bigger than you, something outside of you, not about you, something that requires your time and your treasure and your talent, and you will throw yourself into it with great joy and great passion. My prayer for you is the same as the prayer I have for myself, that you will find that and that you will throw yourself into that cause. And in the midst of giving that hug, in the midst of serving that bowl of rice, in the midst of writing that check to, 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 to bless that effort, suddenly, when you least expect it, in a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, a trumpet blast. And you will look up and you will see the skies roll back like a scroll, and we will all finally go home. Home where there is no more sickness, no more sorrow, no more death, indeed, no more tears. Because in Revelation, God reserves the right, he says, God himself will wipe away the last tears from our eyes. And I don't know about you, but I cannot wait for that moment. I cannot wait to run into the arms of my Lord, my Savior, my, my Redeemer, panting into his arms. And I can't wait for him to wipe the tears from my eyes, more tears than should be shed by anyone in any lifetime. I've seen and felt so much. But here's my prayer. As he wipes the tears from my eyes, he also notices that he also needs to wipe the sweat from my brow. 
because I lived the life he called me to live. I fought for those who couldn't fight for themselves. I spoke up for those who couldn't speak up for themselves. I loved, I blessed the least of these until I was suddenly and wonderfully interrupted by heaven. May it be so. And may God bless you as you bless the little ones of his kingdom. Amen.